Well, today's a baptism Sunday. Several times a year, we take a good part of a Sunday morning service uh, to celebrate new life in Christ, new life in those who are being baptized, although some um, will let you know in their testimony they've been saved for some time and they, they thought they were baptized, perhaps, or realized they should have been baptized some time ago. Uh, either way, though, it's a celebration of the life that's in Christ, a celebration of Christ's death and resurrection on their behalf. And so as Christians, we watch this, uh, remembering our own baptisms and remembering what those baptisms represent, Christ's work on our behalf and the newness of life that we have in him. And so these are always um, blessed and encouraging Sundays. Uh, we'll do that later in our service, but now let's spend some time soaking in and sitting under God's word together, as we do every Sunday. So turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, we've been in a series in the book of Psalms for several weeks now, and today we come to Psalm 8. And like the other Psalms, like other parts in this great book we call the Bible, we believe this is God's word. And so let's, let's gird up the loins of our thinking and our our hearts, let's prick our hearts for readiness for his word. Let's hear this as it is God's word and let's receive it as though it is God's word. It says this, Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word, amen. Well, I want to show you three things in this psalm specifically this morning. And then I want to show you one other thing uh, that ties together these concepts given to us in Psalm 8 elsewhere in Scripture, taking the themes of Psalm 8 and tying them elsewhere in Scripture. We'll see that at the end. But first, three things about this psalm specifically. The first is this, God's majesty and might in creation. Verses 1 through 3 really set the tone here for God's majesty and his might in creation. He's displayed his majesty and his might in all the earth, it says in verse 1. His creation says something. This should perhaps call to mind Romans 1. You don't have to turn there, but let me read it for you. It tells us that creation gives information. Undeniably, verse 19 of Romans 1 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. The them here is really everybody, Gentiles, the whole world regardless of their religious background. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How? 
His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Well, this passage is true of all of us. Naturally speaking, as we're born into this world, we're all born, in a sense, doing Romans 1, experiencing Romans 1. We know that there's a God, even if we want to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. In various ways, we all suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Some, to the extent that they would say, there is no God. But like trying to suppress water in a smaller container, smaller and smaller, geysers shoot up here and there, betraying the fact that we know there is a God. There is a thing of justice. There will be some kind of reckoning. There is a reason to fear. Even if we pretend that there isn't. So some have said, God doesn't believe in atheists. Atheists don't believe in God. Well, Romans 1 says God doesn't believe in atheists. He doesn't believe that they exist. He thinks that they're sort of faking it. They're lying. They don't think that they're lying, but they're not owning up to what they actually know. It says these things have been clearly perceived. His mark in creation is there, and it's a divine fingerprint. It's everywhere. All the earth. It's even where we're not. It's even where we haven't gone. It's even where we don't see or where we haven't yet been to. Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher of two centuries ago, said it like this. Descend to the lowest depths of the ocean where the water sleeps undisturbed and the sand is motionless in unbroken quiet. The glory of the Lord is there revealing its excellence in the silent palace of the sea. Borrow the wings of the morning and fly to the farthest parts of the sea, God is there. Fly to the highest heaven, and God is praised in everlasting song. Dive to the deepest hell, and God is justified in terrible vengeance. We talked about that last week. Everywhere and in every place, God dwells and is manifestly at work. He's clearly at work everywhere. But David focuses our attention in Psalm 8 upward, right? He begins with all the earth, and then he turns our attention to the heavens. His glory is displayed in and beyond the heavens. And he doesn't mean here uh, little chubby angels with harps sitting on clouds, that kind of heaven, nor the real heaven, like you might think of, the place where the redeemed saints go when they die. He means here stars, space, the firmament, as Genesis called it. God's glory is displayed up there. Psalm 19 talks about this. Another passage that should come to mind when we read uh, Psalm 8, 1 Romans 1, also Psalm 19, which talks about how creation is speaking. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Oh, not literally, not verbally, but almost as good as verbally. 
It says something. It gives information. It reveals. In fact, verse 2, day to day, every day, pours out speech. God's creation every day is just pouring out information. We're all trying to do this. Ah, you know, plug the ears, run around, ignore it. Some of us have gotten pretty calloused in our ears, even Christians perhaps. We're not slowing to see. We're not really listening. But it's there. There's no speech, nor are there words, David says, whose voice is not heard. In other words, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words go to the end of the world. Now notice, Psalm 8 and Psalm 19 are both written by whom? David. Yeah, it's right at the top. You can cheat. Right at the top of Psalm 8, right at the top of Psalm 19. This is a psalm written by David. And remember, David, before he was king, was a shepherd. Now, I don't know firsthand, but I imagine that the work of a shepherd is at times very work-intensive. Perhaps panicked in its work, right? You, you've got to chase down that sheep before it runs off a cliff, or you've got to get them all together, and it, it's dirty, hard work. But other times, I'm sure, shepherding is very calm, relaxed, even boring. And I'm sure some of those times where there's downtime, it's outside, and it's night. So we can safely guess that as a young shepherd, David spent a great deal of time looking up at the stars. He knows his Bible, and think specifically of Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account there, right? David would know that. A lot of the language we have here in Psalm 8 hints at Genesis 1 and 2, how God created things there, what God said there. So David knows his Bible, specifically the creation account, and he knows what he sees when he looks up to the sky. And really, in Psalm 8, he puts those together. Psalm 8 is a worshipful meditation on what God gave us in his word about his creation, how he did it, why he did it, and what he did after it. And it's also wonderful, worshipful meditation on what God has demonstrated, what he has said in that creation itself. David mentions a couple of specifics of God's handiwork in verse 3. Look at verse 3. We'll start in verse 3 and then work our way back up to verse 1. In verse 3, he says, when I look at your heavens, again, that's stars, that's space. The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. Stop there. Have you ever been out in the middle of nowhere at night and the stars look like it's all one sheet of light? It doesn't look anything like city stars, right? If you live here in town, you know city stars. There's that one over there and you can kind of see the Big Dipper and oh, there's Orion's belt and that's about it. Uh, you go out into the country, a ways out, away from light, and it is spectacular. It is literally breathtaking. If you've ever owned even a half-decent telescope, a junky kid's telescope will give you more information about what's out there probably than David ever saw. I mean, he only had the naked eye for all we know. He didn't have a a kid's telescope. Some of you have good telescopes. And then there's this thing called the Hubble telescope. You've probably heard of it. 
It's amazing what we can see today of God's creation from the luxury of our own homes, through the internet, uh, for free. So you've all heard of the Hubble telescope by now, but you may not know that there are hundreds of pictures from the Hubble that are now online. Let me just give you this address. Jot it down if you want to go look. It's worth your time. This is a worthwhile time waster to just peruse astrology, astronomy pictures on hubblesite.org. Hubblesite.org. Let me just show you a handful of examples of what you can find on there. Here's a close-up of our star, the sun. It's the star at the center of our galaxy, as you know. And, you know, it looks still from where we stand. To the naked eye, it looks like it's just there being happy. That's why kids draw smiley faces on their sons. The sun looks always happy. But instead, it is a giant ball of nuclear fusion. It is exploding. It is shooting fire out of it. It's violent. And it's self-sustaining. At least for a while. We don't know how long that will last, but scientists say, yes, eventually it will burn out like other stars. But so far, it's self-sustaining. It's a nuclear bomb that keeps happening. It's amazing. Our sun is 109 times the size of our earth. If you've ever been up in a plane and actually gotten high enough where you can see the, you know, you can see the curvature of the earth. You feel small. You sense that the earth is much bigger than you imagined. It's much bigger than the globe that your kids have and they love to play with and spin as hard as they possibly can. Well, the sun is 109 times the size of the earth, the real earth. That means 100, uh, sorry, 1.3 million earths can fit inside the sun. But we actually have a pretty small star at the center of our galaxy. The largest known star is 1,800 times larger than our sun. And this is what a birth of a star looks like. By the way, that's still happening. Stars are still being born. Here's the birth of a star. We call this protostellar jet. I didn't know that before this week. I know it now. Protostellar jet. That is the formation of a star. You know, if you, if you didn't know that came from Hubble, you'd think that's fake. I mean, I kind of see like a, a dog in there. Did you see the dog? It's like Thomas Kincaid drew a space dog. But God gave us this. And so it's not cheesy. It's glorious and wonderful and bewildering, if not bizarre. Here's another protostellar jet. Look at that. Man, what is going on there? I don't know. I'm sure some people know more than I do, but... I'm sure there's a lot of mystery there in that ball forming a star. That's just one star forming. There are these star clusters. Here's star cluster M22. That's a lot of stars. I counted them this week. No, I didn't. I didn't count them this week. 
That's not in our galaxy, but we have star clusters in our galaxy too. We have approximately 200 to 400 billion, they don't know, 200 to 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. That's amazing. And then there are other galaxies. Here's spiral galaxy, M100. Look at that. Just stare at it for a while. I mean, I, I don't know what to say. I, how can I add to that? That's one galaxy. There could be as many as 500 billion galaxies out there. That means that there could be a total number of stars, get this number, 2 times 10 to the 23rd power. And if you forgot trig, or never took it, or came a few years short of it, let me tell you what that means. That means this is a number with 2 at the beginning and then 23 zeros after it. Possibly that many stars in the total universe. Here's a dust band around galaxy M64. Look at that. Now, if you were to put Earth somewhere in there, how big would it be? It's not our galaxy, but our galaxy has pictures like that as well. And think of Earth and its smallness compared to that. Doesn't it seem like all this is superfluous? glory. God made this a long time ago. I'll leave you to fill in that number, how long ago it was. But God made this stuff a long time ago. He knew one day we would have Hubble telescopes, and he knew that it would be a long time before those came along. These are the works of his fingers. Let me just show you a nebula, a cloud of gas, just for fun. Look at that. This is a nebula. There are a lot of these out there, and they have twisters in them. This one has two twisters, if you can spot them. Little tornadoes inside gas clouds. And you know, if I were making gas clouds, I wouldn't think to make them so pretty. God did. The works of his fingers. Now, on the one hand, God doesn't have fingers, right? On the other hand, what David is doing, what other parts of the Bible are doing when they attribute a human feature to God who doesn't have that human feature, is they're trying to communicate something. What David is saying is, he made this stuff with his just, like a finger. What do you do with your finger? Finger paint? Pick your nose? I mean, what do you do with a finger? God speaks worlds into existence. It's like flinging things with his finger and yet he didn't do it clumsily or chaotically he set it in its place right where it goes it's perfect everything's in balance even more he's ongoingly sustaining mightily sustaining it all this star going out this star coming in this black hole happening and get this God has also demonstrated his majesty and his might in little babies. That's what verse 2 says. Look at that. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, that's remarkable 
and you probably don't get it. We can all agree it's remarkable and it's confusing. What does that mean in verse 2? That out of the mouth of babies and infants, God has established strength because of your foes to still the enemy. Well, here's my shot at it. The mouths of babies and all that goes on in a little mouth of a baby is demonstrating God's ongoing creating, sustaining work in this world. It shows his power. It shows his provision. It shows his goodness. It shows his joy. It shows that he is majestic. And that's enough to shut the mouths of his enemies. At least it should be. I think that's what verse 2 is saying. There's enough power There's enough wonder, there's enough glory, there's enough beauty, there's enough joy in the cooing of a baby that the enemies should buckle. Let me give you two good quotes on this, one older, one newer. The newer first from a commentator, a scholar, Willem van Gemmeren. He says, the sound of children is concrete evidence of God's fortress on earth. The continuity of the human race is God's way of assuring the ultimate glorification of an earth populated with a new humanity. In other words, every baby is a testimony that his work isn't done and his plan will be fulfilled. The sound of opposition from God's enemies is silenced by the babbling and chatter of children. What a contrast! What a king! Van Gemmeren says... Similarly, John Calvin, the 16th century, said, Babes and sucklings are advocates sufficiently powerful to vindicate the providence of God. They are witnesses and preachers of God's glory. Invincible champions of God who, when it comes to the conflict, can easily scatter in discomfort the whole host of the wicked. They are imposed with the office of defending the glory of God. Doesn't that make you want to have a baby? (laughs) Or adopt a baby? So again, the mouths of babies demonstrate God's ongoing, creating, sustaining power, provision, goodness, and joy. And that should be enough to shut the mouths of his enemies Or we could put it like this, God's enemies should tremble at the giggles and coos of babies. They don't, but they should. Does this remind you of Psalm 2? Remember, the nations are conspiring against him, but he laughs. Or 1 Corinthians 1, that God has chosen what's foolish in this world to confound what's wise. He's chosen what's weak in this world to confound what's strong. He's done this so that no flesh can glory in itself. He loves to use the little, the weak, the poor, the unspecial, so that his power, his glory, his goodness is demonstrated. There's more to this as well in the New Testament. Romans 8, 2 is quoted in Matthew 21. Would you turn to Matthew 21 for me? Look over there and let's see how Jesus quotes Matthew 8 to this whole thing about babies and their praise, establishing strength, defeating the enemies. Matthew 21, Jesus has just done the triumphal entry, 
come to town on a donkey and, you know, all the people have said, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then verses 12 to 13, he cleanses the temple. Look at verse 14, Matthew 21. It says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes, religious leaders, saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out to him in the temple, they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David, the religious leaders were indignant. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? In other words, aren't you going to stop them? Isn't this blasphemous? They're calling you the Messiah. Don't let children be led astray. They're just children. Children shouldn't do this. And Jesus just said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes. Here's the quote from Psalm 8-2. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city. That's, that's like someone just dropping the microphone. They dropped something on the mic. They dropped it and walked away. That's what Jesus does. He just quotes Psalm 8-2, and it says, and he left the city. Love it. Now, now what, what's going on here? Why is Jesus quoting Psalm 8-2? There's a whole lot of Old Testament he could have quoted, but children are praising him, and he's saying, this is the fulfillment. And thereby he's suggesting, not just suggesting, oh, he's demanding that he's God. He's insisting that he's the Messiah. He's very clear about that. The praise that was due God in Psalm 8, these children Jesus says, are attributing to him now, and it's good. And he's also saying that what he's starting to do here in this work there in Jerusalem is Psalm 8 work. Psalm 8 is starting to be fulfilled that day. Hold on to that. We'll come back to that at the end. But it's all worthy of exclamation. Verse 1, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. The Lord, Yahweh, God, is our Lord, David says. It's such beautiful poetry, we miss how offensive that is to a pluralistic society. The God, one God, is our God. And his name is majestic, not just in our little church building, not just in that temple there. He is majestic in all the earth. Now let's talk about the second thing here in Psalm 8. We see God's condescension and care for humanity in verse 4. His condescension and care. Notice the contrast between verse 3 and verse 4. Verse 3 Stars and moons, even whole galaxies, he set in place with just his fingers. He flung it there, and it stayed, and it's in its place. So, verse 4, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Man, as it's used here in verse 4, the first reference to man, refers to fragile man. But then there's son of man which has more of a kingly ring to it. He's the son. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. It's, it's not just that God cares about the original design of stars going there and it being pretty, 
But he doesn't care about the here and now. That's the deist God. And it's also not that he only cares for things out there. He's only really focusing on impressing the Hubble telescope scholars and scientists. No. He's involved in all the little things. So Psalm 104 gives us several examples of how God provides for and cares for specific animals in specific ways. The rock badger, this way. The mountain goat, that way. God cares for them, feeds them in specific ways, for specific animals, and he cares for human beings as well. And you might think, well, of course he cares for human beings. You know, if you live in front of the mirror, and I don't mean that literally, I mean sort of as a, a symbol for life. I mean, if you live in front of the mirror, if life is about you, you won't be surprised in the bit that, a bit that God cares for human beings. You won't think that people are small. But if you spend a minute looking out a window in the space station back to Earth, you quickly join David in knowing how amazing it is that God cares for us, for people, for individuals. He's mindful of us, it says in verse 4, and he cares for us, which means condescension. That sounds like a bad thing. The way we use it relationally today is, oh, you're being condescending to me. Theologically, religiously, what it means in Scripture is that God stoops to us to reveal himself to us. He didn't have to reveal himself to us. He didn't need us. He didn't create you because he was lonely and he, he's just been restless until you came along. No, the three persons of the Trinity have been eternally relating, community, communing, and loving each other for all eternity before Genesis 1 ever began. He didn't create us because he was lonely, because he needed us. He created us for his glory. And he created us in such a way that we can understand him. And he revealed himself in such a way that we can understand him, at least some of him. And he revealed himself and he cares. He doesn't just say, here I am, here are the facts, here's the information, I gave you a book, you're on your own. But he's intimately involved in providing for us, protecting us, angels watching over us, sustaining us. Who beats your heart? Well, an electric pulse does. Well, yeah, where? Where would that come from? Well, it comes from my brain. And what, you're trusting this gray matter? Is gray matter God now? God sustains all this. He holds it together. Hebrews 1 says that's what Jesus is doing. It's amazing. It gets more amazing in this third section here, God's delegation of dominion to us. Delegation of dominion. I know it's a bit wordy, so let me explain what I mean by delegation of dominion. Notice in verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. That means that God has dominion. He has things in his hands, under his hands. And in his wisdom, his mysterious wisdom, for his glory, for some reason, he's delegated some of that to us, to human beings especially. It's what we call the image of God. Genesis 1 
tells us that part of being made in God's image is doing God's work. Listen to this. Genesis 1, verse 26, God says, Let's make man in our own image after our own likeness. And let them have, let all them after them, after Adam and Eve, let them as a whole have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. See that list sounding so much like Psalm 8, verses 7 and 8, listing various parts of creation over which humans, mankind, is given dominion. Given dominion, it says in verse 28 of Genesis 1, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over it. Now, I can't get into what that means for ecology. can't get into what that means for, you know, a green planet. Or, I think there are ways in which you could fall off either side of the horse at this point, and creation could be a God replacement, and you've missed the specialness of mankind in his plan. You've raised animals perhaps to the level of, of man, and, and God's word says differently about that. On the other hand, Christians above all shouldn't be people who want to, want to not care for God's creation, his stuff, to miss that that thing in creation where he delegated part of his dominion to us. So we're made in his image. And that image has many facets to it, but one of them definitely is dominion. Ruling, organizing, categorizing, taking care of, cleaning up, putting down. And after all this, the psalm just ends, verse 9, with a repeated exclamation of praise, just like it did at the beginning. Look at verse 9, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When a psalm ends on a note that it began on, it's called bookending, and it tells us this is the subject line of your email. This is what it's all about. This is what the whole thing had to say. Okay, so now we've examined the psalm. We've gone through all nine verses, but there's more that we could say about this because Psalm 8 doesn't tell us the whole story. That's okay. It doesn't mean there, there's something wrong with it. It doesn't mean it's not true or misleading. But as Christians, we should think whole Bible as much as we can. And I think there are some parts, another, I think there are some sections of God's word elsewhere that overlap with what Psalm 8 says that we should pay attention to. It's almost as if Psalm 8 gives us a snapshot of a part of God's plan, and it does it in a timeless way. And what we need to do is put some time on it, some time stamps. So if Psalm 8's in the middle of our Bibles here, we need to sort of look backwards a bit, and then we need to look forwards a bit. So that leads to our last point this morning. God's glory and goodness in the rest of the story. There's more to the story than this. The first part is this, going backwards, Psalm 8, everything it said there, has gone awry in the fall. This plan of God delegating dominion to human beings has gone awry in the fall. The fall being that time where Adam and Eve sinned and then launched all of humanity into a movement of rebellion against its maker. So one way to understand sin is the failure to do 
Godward dominion. Sin in one way, the brokenness of this world in one way is reflected in the fact that we haven't done what he's delegated to us. We've taken it and we've run with it in our own way. We've taken it, we've, we've dirtied it here. And you don't need the Bible to show you that. Just look around. Just look at that political scandal. Just look at that city that is broken in every conceivable way. Just look at the restlessness of some of the most blessed nations, ours first and foremost. You see that there's brokenness all around us and we need to feel the extent of that brokenness, the hopelessness of that brokenness. We need to feel something of the impossibility of Psalm 8 happening. Do you get that? Psalm 8 was timeless. We need to understand that Psalm 8 isn't happening. We're not doing a good job being in charge of God's creation. Things have gone awry. But look forward from Psalm 8. And we see Psalm 8 restored in the perfect man. Psalm 8's quoted in three different places in the New Testament. One we've seen already, Matthew 21. Let's close by looking at the other two. 1 Corinthians 15 is a quick one. In verse 25, Paul says that Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. An allusion to Psalm 8, no doubt. A long quote is in Hebrews 2, the other passage. Listen to this. It says in verse 6 of Hebrews 2, it's been testified somewhere. Isn't that nice that the writer of Hebrews didn't know exactly? Somewhere in the Bible it says, comfort to every preacher who's fudged a reference before. Actually, it's Psalm 8, 5 through 6. This is the somewhere. It says, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. We've read all this. And then the writer comments on it. Verse 9, he says, now, verse 8 in the middle. Now, when putting everything in subjection to Jesus, God left nothing outside of his control. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was laid, made lower than the angels and that he became a man, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's wordy there. What it's saying is Jesus is the hope for Psalm 8 happening. God has assigned us what Psalm 8 says just repeating what Genesis 1 already said. We've wrecked it. It's broken. It seems hopeless. But one came along who is the true son of man. He's the true son of God. He's the perfect man. The true king, the ruler, who is righteous and true and loving. His dominion is merciful. It's perfect. 
and he's been successful in all the works of his hands. Therefore, God has now put all things under his feet. Which brings us to baptism, and not unnaturally so. In other words, it's not a big leap to go from Psalm 8 to baptism. The two are related significantly. You see, because baptism is a picture of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. It shows us that he's the king. 1 Corinthians 15 ties Psalm 8 and Jesus' resurrection together. And so now in him, through faith, we identify with his work, his dominion, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the restoration that's coming in him. And now in him, we're beginning to be restored to that purpose for which we were first made. We're finally starting to do the image. We're finally starting to have true, godly, humble dominion. And baptism is not a new start for Christians. It's a symbol of identifying with a new man who's making a new creation. 